0: This is about to get messy. Welcome to 22 of the most atrocious tech fails of all time. From bad to worse to straight up nightmares, number one is going to make you want to punch a hole in your screen. All right, kicking things off with OnePlus, who spent a good few months this year hyping up the OnePlus watch. They showed us that it looked just like any other high-end Samsung or Google smartwatch. They showed us that it had a beautiful OLED screen and that it only cost $159. It's all looking great until we realized that it's not actually a smartwatch. It doesn't run apps, it can't play your Spotify playlist. It's basically just taken the insides of a fitness tracker, like Xiaomi's $40 Mi Band 6, and plused it into a smartwatch form factor. Two out of 10 fail. Some people liked it. Most didn't. You didn't like it either, did you? You might remember this pair of sunglasses. These are the Snapchat spectacles, designed to be put on your face, pressed over here, after which they'll instantly start recording video on the camera on this side, for your Snapchat story. And the cool thing about these is that they shoot circular video, which means anyone who watches your story can watch it in portrait, they can watch it in landscape, or any orientation in between, and they're still getting a full-size picture. But, Snapchat really goofed this one up. For some bizarre reason, instead of selling these online and capitalizing on the global reach that their platform had built, Spectacles would only be available through select Snapchat branded vending machines. It took five months before everyone could actually go online and buy them, but at that point, there's no hype, people just didn't care anymore. This feels like a three out of 10 fail. They have come out with three more iterations since then, so it's not like the Spectacles brand is dead, but by scuffing up the first launch, they have sent it on the wrong trajectory. Okay, I smell. Just realized that needs context. I smell is the name of a product released all the way back in 1999. And it was meant to usher in the next era of computing. It plugged into your PC with a USB port and it stored 128 different chemicals inside it, which it could release in any combination to create pretty much any scent it wanted to. From fresh cut grass to burning rubber to, I kid you not, rotting swamp. And do you know what? It worked. This company had a huge vision. They were getting ready to partner up with IMAX cinemas, video game developers. They even created a web portal where users could send each other their own custom scents, aka a Snortle. The issue was more that it just wasn't a very good idea. iSmell was developed on the premise that, well, we can see things on our computers, we can hear things from our computers. Smell is the next logical sense to add in there. Whereas in actuality, Consumers had no use for it, apart from apparently using it to create custom fart smells. Three out of 10. But the 90s were actually full of tech flops like this. Companies just flailing around in the hope that they just happened to land on the next big thing. For example, Microsoft. They found themselves wanting to keep adding more features to their Windows operating system, but were worried that by doing so, they were going to create yet more confusion for people who weren't digital natives. So their solution was a complete overhaul called Bob. This replaced your typical desktop, your start key, and columns of icons with a house. The idea was that it could introduce people to Windows programs like LetterWriter in a way that they were used to in their real lives, by, for example, putting the program on a desk, and you could go to different rooms to access different programs. But The truth of it is though, Microsoft underestimated people. The normal Windows desktop was not really that hard to understand. And the simplified version was, well, not only condescending to anyone over the age of eight, but it also added extra steps that meant even when you got good, everything you're doing was just slower. Three out of 10 fail. Saved slightly by the fact that Bob is the origin of that virtual assistant Clippy who stuck with us. Okay, if you spend a reasonable amount of time on the internet, You'll probably have heard of the 2021 Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's a film set in the DC universe, so involving Batman, Superman, etc. But the really interesting thing about this film is that it's already been released once before. Back in 2017, we had the Justice League movie, but what had happened is the director, Zack Snyder, his daughter died partway through filming, which is horrific. And obviously he couldn't just carry on making the film as if nothing had happened, he needed time. Problem was though, that instead of giving him time, the company instead got a replacement director in a director who had his own vision, and in the end, fans didn't love it. Reviews were mixed to disappointed in a best case scenario, and the film actually lost almost 60 million dollars as a result. Here's the thing, this DC Universe is in direct competition with the Marvel Universe, which has its own set of superheroes and stories. Assemble. And given that Marvel has literally been pumping out a box office hit every year, DC needed Justice League to be better than this. People were so upset that they started rallying to see Snyder's version of the film. They started creating social media campaigns, even hiring a plane to fly a banner over DC events in protest. I'll give this a 4 out of 10 fail, made slightly better by the fact that fans did get what they wanted in the end. Eventually, Snyder did return. He got together the original actors and he finished his version of the film the way he'd envisioned it. It was better, but because it was a re release it just didn't get the numbers that you kind of want for this caliber of film. And if you are enjoying this video, then a sub to the channel would be... Super... Man. Alright, you've seen a dual camera, you've seen a triple camera, you've probably seen a quad camera. But this is what happens when the company Light decides to make a $2,000 Hexadeca camera. The idea was to try and recreate DSLR quality in a pocketable smartphone form factor. And to do that, they've swapped out one enormous protruding lens for 16 smaller cameras spread out over a larger area. And every time I tap this shutter button right here, at least 10 of those cameras, which are all seeing slightly different things, capture and then use computational photography to fuse their images together for one enormous complete shot. I remember being so excited for this product. I also remember not being able to afford this product, but that's besides the point. This Light L16 could churn out an 81 megapixel output. That was almost unheard of in 2017. Unfortunately, this company had bitten off more than they could chew. Their idea had potential. It's not impossible to do what they were trying to do, but creating software that can properly interpret and fuse the data from 16 cameras is such a complex task that even mammoth companies like Google aren't able to do it yet how is this little startup gonna do it? And plus, the fact that the L16 was churning out its own kind of specialized images meant that you couldn't just send them straight from this to Instagram. You'd have to connect to a computer, run them through the company's own editing app, and then export in a usable format. This complexity meant that it wasn't really tempting for people who already took photos on their phone, and the mediocre execution meant that it wasn't really tempting for people who already had DSLR cameras. So, even though it raised over $180 million in funding, The Lytle 16 went dark. You've probably heard of the legendary war between Intel and AMD. For the past 20 years, to be honest, longer, these two companies have been each other's biggest and only rivals in the fight for the best desktop CPU. And for the majority of it, Intel's been winning. See, the thing is, for the same price, you could get an AMD chip with more cores. But Intel's architecture was more efficient, and so each core they did have was more powerful. And because, historically, apps and games were programmed to take advantage of two, maybe four cores, but probably not more than that, you're usually better off with Intel. So with that in mind, in 2011, AMD made what can only be described as a severe lapse in judgment. What they needed to do was to come out and say, okay, our next generation chips are coming. They have fewer or maybe the same amount of cores, but each core that we do have is going to be good. What they actually did, though, was came out with their bulldozer architecture. Even more cores with even weaker performance per core. These cores had been so hampered that AMD had a $12.1 million lawsuit on their hands from consumers who felt like, actually, these don't even really count as separate cores. It almost looked like AMD was AM done. But I'm only giving this a 4 out of 10 fail because of how this company has miraculously bounced back in the last few years. The combination of A, Intel getting a little too comfortable at the top, B, AMD's architecture coming a long way, and C, applications becoming more able to use the extra cores that AMD gives you, has meant that for the first time in 15 years, they've rocketed up and finally knocked Intel off the top spot in terms of market share. AM, damn. Okay, this one hurts for me. I was a huge fan of the PlayStation Portable when I was a teenager. The fact that you could play it anywhere meant that I've never sunk more hours into a single console. I was so into it that I distinctly remember times when I would just sit there and dream about what a next-gen PSP would look like. Sony answered my prayers. Out came the PlayStation Vita in 2011, and it was more than I even dreamed of. Dual analog sticks, beautiful OLED screen, almost PlayStation 3 level graphics. I swear, I almost had a nerd fit when I saw this thing get launched, but it sold terribly. In large part, I think because of pricing. Sony paired a $250 starting figure with the fact that, to actually use this console, people also needed to buy a special Sony-branded SD card, at $120 for just 32 gigabytes. Here's the thing, right? The initial sales of a console are absolutely crucial. If your machine does not sell well to start with, then less developers are going to want to make good games for it, and then even less customers are going to want to actually buy the thing. Thankfully, Sony has learned from this. That's why with this generation, with the PS5, they actually decided to make a loss on that console, just to make it a affordable to get that initial sales push. But for the Vita, it was pretty much dead on arrival, finished off by the fact that then, Sony decided to just stop talking about it. They decided that the reason it sold poorly was because of the rise of smartphone gaming, when actually the fact that Nintendo Switch is still flying off the shelves in 2021 proves that that's not true. They just screwed it up. 4 out of 10. Okay, let's be honest for a second, there was a point in all of our lives when we wanted a 3D TV. I mean, it makes total sense. 3D is the next logical step after 2D. It's just every now and again in the tech industry, we get ideas being implemented before the tech is good enough. We have these visions of what the future is and companies rush to get there first. And in the case of 3D, this rush meant that the standard that was actually established was just far too convoluted and expensive. You needed to pay extra to get a panel capable of 3D. You had to get a specific type of Blu-ray player that could handle 3D content. And every single person watching would need to have their own set of specialized and not very comfortable 3D glasses. Imagine this, say I wanted to invite a family over to watch a movie with mine. Not only are we all gonna sit there looking like a bunch of tools but that could be 10 glasses, sometimes costing $150 each. And it's not even like they could just bring their own that they already have, because different brands of 3D TVs would use different 3D technologies. Just kill me now. So even though 3D TVs managed to sell in decent numbers to start with, out of pure hype, the people who own these TVs didn't find themselves using 3D. And so pretty much wrote off the feature as something they didn't care about in their next TV. So within about seven years of their mainstream appearance, Everyone was either in the camp of, I've tried 3D and I don't care for it, or I was never into 3D in the first place. Worthy, I think, of a five out of 10 fail. Pretty funny seeing the entire industry galloping towards 3D. Like, this is the future, let's make some money. And then silently trying to slip away when they realized that it wasn't. All right. Imagine this, it's 2010, the Nintendo Wii has come onto the scene and completely changed our perception of what it means to be a gamer. So, unsurprisingly, Microsoft wanted a piece of that cake. And do you know what, to some extent, they killed it. They worked with a 3D sensing company to develop a camera for your Xbox 360 that was just like the Wii, but able to use all of your limbs without any controller at all. This wasn't some half-baked Wii knockoff. this was a step above. And you could tell that people were excited about it by the fact that Kinect actually broke a Guinness World Record for the fastest-selling electronic device on record. Holy moly! But then it very quickly and very curiously lost momentum. It all came down to timing. See, the initial tsunami of sales, that came from people who thought, oh, the Wii was a complete game changer, and this is basically the Wii 2.0, so I gotta get on that before it sells out. But after this mass hysteria, you were left with two camps of people. Those who just wanted that casual gaming experience to just be able to play virtual tennis against their friends. And this group was perfectly happy with the Wii they already had, even if Kinect was technically superior. But then also the hardcore gamers had no real reason to buy a Kinect. Because all of these big budget developers, the ones that tend to make hardcore games, they'd spent decades optimizing for traditional controllers. And they just felt no urge to suddenly create something completely new. So as an alternative to original content, Xbox started integrating Kinect's features into normal, existing games, but in a really cringe and unnecessary manner. Like, for example, if you swore while playing FIFA, the ref in-game could hear you through the microphone in your Kinect and give you a red card. <laughs> the idea was that? <sighs> for the launch of their next generation Xbox, the Xbox One, they decided to announce that Kinect was a mandatory part of the package. You had to buy Kinect to get the new Xbox, which, as you can imagine, went down about as well as a lead balloon. It's pretty rare to see a product that starts with record-breaking sales, but then flops twice in one decade. What can I say, Kinect just didn't connect. Five out of 10 fail. But let's talk about that Xbox One, because Kinect was not the company's biggest blunder. See, back in 2013, Xbox was in a good position. Their previous Xbox 360 was an unarguable hit. It was fairly priced, unlike the PS3 at launch, and it was jam-packed with top-tier exclusive games. Xbox had people on their side, and so all they really needed to do was to release a next-gen console and carry on doing what they were doing. What did they actually do? Well, one, they called their successor the Xbox One, which, you know, would be fine if it was the first Xbox but as it was actually the third, caused an unnecessary amount of confusion, especially next to Sony's seamless PS3 to PS4 transition. Two, Xbox realized that people were increasingly using their consoles as a way to stream video content, but then mistakenly used that info to decide that they were going to spend half of their next-gen console reveal event. You know, the one event where people are tuning in around the world, expecting to be blown away by the next-gen gaming experiences they're about to get, talking about how it plays TV. Three, the fact that they did choose to decide to bundle in Kinect by default, pushed the console's price to $100 more than the PS4 it was up against. But do you wanna know the worst part of all is how they started pushing this always online agenda. They basically implied that you would have to connect your Xbox to the internet once per day if you wanted to keep playing your games, just so that Xbox could make sure that you hadn't pirated them. They said that you couldn't trade or sell games to other people because they would be locked to your online account. But on top of all of this, that you'd have to pay a $60 per year subscription for online connectivity, even if all you wanted to do was to just check your Facebook account. And They even went as far as to say that if you want a console that's not always online, just buy our last Xbox. I remember watching all this unfold at the time and I wanted to laugh and cry at the same time. They basically gave Sony a perfect opportunity to rip them a new one, which they did. And Microsoft is still feeling the impact of that today, bringing this to a prestigious six out of 10 thing. Okay, when you think of drones, you probably think of DJI, right? Well, back in 2014, GoPro wanted to change that. They noticed that sales of their flagship Hero cameras were dipping, and at the same time that drone sales were rocketing. So why not create a drone that can use a GoPro Hero camera to record its footage? That's literally two birds, one... drone. The main issue, though, was that unlike most drones, which placed the camera directly underneath to establish a solid center of gravity, GoPro put its camera in front of the drone, which caused more strain on the motors, more vibration than was normal, and this, combined with a not-so-secure battery latch, meant that for quite a few unfortunate customers, their drones would lose power mid-flight. You had some karmas falling out of the sky, and at the same time, a whole batch of other ones that couldn't take off because of a GPS bug. The truth of it is, it's just tough to enter a new product category and get it right first time, not least something as complex and error-prone as a drone. And what it boils down to is that GoPro rushed it. The company had to issue a recall for every single Karma out there, and it looks like they've permanently exited the drone space because of this blunder. Karma does buy back. Transition. Okay, we're in the top 10. Things are about to get pretty fail tested So, you know how we talk about cloud gaming nowadays? Streaming games just like we stream movies. Well, imagine someone telling you in 2009, when we were still playing Halo 3 on our Xbox 360s, that they'd figured out how to stream any game at maximum PC quality graphical settings to any device without any console at all. And this wasn't just any random person, this was Steve Perlman, who used to be the brains at Apple, and his concept actually worked. He hired a team, he founded the company OnLive, and started getting the word out there. They made an appearance at the Game Developers Conference in 2009, and the reaction was straight up amazement. This team started the day proudly forwarding articles to each other that the press had written. But as the day went on, they realized that they could not keep up. Attendees were so impressed that they tried to pry open the walls of the OnLive booth to check that they were in fact streaming the games and not playing them on a console behind the wall. As a matter of fact, for the duration of this conference, more people searched for the term OnLive than they did video games. So understandably at this point, these guys were rubbing their hands together, absolutely expecting to be an instant hit the moment they launched. They started deploying thousands of servers to be ready for the incoming wave of users, but they never arrived. Turns out, there was an enormous gap in the number of people wanting to experience OnLive, those willing to try a free demo, versus the number of users who wanted to adopt it, to pay a monthly subscription and switch from their already purchased console to game streaming. Internet infrastructure, for one, just wasn't as good then as it is now, and gamers were still very much of the opinion that they wanted to own their games, not rent them from a server. OnLive did officially quote that they had an active user base of 1.5 million, but It turns out this figure actually includes every single person who had ever even tested the service. And the actual concurrent active user base never passed 1,600. Let me ask you a question. What browser are you using right now? It's probably going to be either the YouTube app or Google Chrome or maybe Safari. But if this was 2002, I wouldn't have had to have asked because Internet Explorer held over 95% of the market share for web browsers. This program was bundled in with every single Windows computer. It was unstoppable until Google Chrome came out in 2008. Now, you might be starting to notice a bit of a trend with this video. There will always be a next thing, especially in the world of tech. It is not enough to just be the best. You have to keep evolving to stay the best. That's not what Internet Explorer did. See, this browser released back in 1995 was built to view web pages because back then that's all the internet was ever used for. And even with all its updates and patches, it never really escaped that. Chrome was built with a bigger vision. It wasn't just faster and more streamlined, it was open source, meaning that any developer around the world could contribute improve it. it was built around support for proper web-based applications like Google Maps, and this was only reinforced when they then dropped a full-on web app store. Plus, all of this came at a time when Microsoft was fighting an antitrust case for basically abusing the power that they had with Windows to artificially get more people to use Internet Explorer, which they bundled with it. And after losing this battle, they were forced to then give every new user the option of which browser they wanted to use, at which point no one picked Internet Explorer. Right, when I say the Avengers, you think of the movies, right? These super high budget blockbuster films that the entire world waits to watch. So when Marvel announced in 2017 that there was gonna be an Avengers video game through this cryptic reveal trailer, fans went wild. It racked up views. The expectations were mountainous. They had to deliver that same quality into this game. But they didn't. The end result that we got in 2020, after three full years of teasing, was not a hulking success. See, it's easy to look at this company licensing the Avengers name for a game as taking the easy way out. But I would actually say that the towering heights of this IP was actually the main hurdle here. For example, immediately noticeable to anyone who's watched the movies was that these game characters don't look the same. Presumably because it was too expensive to license the real faces of the actors that people had gotten used to. So right out the gate, this was likened to a knockoff version of Marvel. Secondly, there's the pressure of, if we're licensing the Avengers name, then we've got to make sure we properly monetize that opportunity. So instead of this game being really character-driven or story-focused, it ended up leaning much more heavily on being a multiplayer-focused live service game that encouraged you to buy in-game items with real money. Think Fortnite, just, worse. But also because Marvel is such a huge machine, there are many moving parts. They're also scheduling comics, movies, merch, uh, other events at the same time as this game is being developed. And so there's quite a strict development timeline. And as a result, the developers couldn't make enough original content. And so what you actually end up doing in this game is fighting the same enemies in the same locations again and again and again. It just wasn't fun. And the stats show that. For some perspective, the game Counter-Strike regularly hits 1 million people playing at any one time. This game started out with just 28,000 concurrent players, but within two months was on just 1,800. They did promise to add in more content, the kind of content that should have really been there at launch in a later update. But really, once you've lost someone in a video game, they're not coming back. Oh yeah, and then the game had an update that accidentally started publicly displaying people's IP addresses. Could you imagine if you're a famous streamer logging on to Twitch to stream with your fans, but then without realizing it, you accidentally give them your location? This game was not just a commercial flop, but also a security risk, earning it a glorious 7 out of 10 fail. Alrighty, there's a pretty good chance that you remember Blockbuster. See, back in the day, the way people would consume videos at home was to go into a VHS store, have a flick through their 50 or so different videotapes on offer, and then just pick one of them that they liked to buy or rent. I know, I sound like a right dinosaur. But Blockbuster, they came onto the scene with a new strategy, an innovative new barcode system that could automatically keep track of up to 10,000 different videotapes per store. Who had taken out what, and when each person needed to return their tape. The system was great for consumers because they had more choice than ever, and it was great for Blockbuster because they could charge every single person who was late to return their tapes a $40 penalty. It was an overnight success. Literally the first day Blockbuster opened, they had to lock the doors to keep the crowd down. And before long, Blockbuster were opening a new store per day. What happened? was Netflix. But probably not the Netflix you know of. Fun fact, that company actually started in 1997 by using the postal service to ship people DVDs that they could then watch and return by mail. And I realize that sounds like a bit of a faff, but they had it all mapped out. See, when you signed up to Netflix, you start paying a $20 monthly fee and you make a list of movies that you want to watch. And next business day, three of those movies will arrive at your doorstep. And you can keep them for as long as you want, no $40 late penalty fee. But because you're paying monthly anyways, and because you're only allowed to keep three DVDs at a time maximum, you would actually want to keep sending them back so you can get through as many movies as possible and get your money's worth. Not as easy as what we have today, but enough to spell the beginning of the end for Blockbuster, who are too caught up in their initial success and trying to build more and more of these brick and mortar stores to notice the rug being pulled from under their feet. And when they finally did notice, and they realized that Netflix had the better strategy, they tried to copy them, only then to get sued for patent infringement, deserving, I think, of a 7 out of 10 fail. Okay, this may come as a surprise to no one, given that it's their fifth guest appearance in a single fails video, but Microsoft had a pretty rough time in the 2000s. But I think Windows Vista was their biggest misstep. See, Microsoft was very aware that people liked Windows XP, but at the same time they were getting a bit antsy because they knew that there hadn't been a major overhaul in a really long time. And I'm gonna be honest with you, from a design perspective, I think Vista and the aero theme it brought in was pretty accomplished. The transparency of Windows and the subtlety of color gave it a much lighter feel. It did look like we just jumped into the future overnight. However, because of how rushed Windows Vista was, developers weren't given enough time to properly optimize their applications for it. So people were updating and then literally finding that they couldn't do their work anymore and that this new focus on design had come at the cost of performance. Compared to XP, Vista required eight times as much RAM to run. It was such a jump in required specs that Microsoft had to start adding stickers onto certain machines to guarantee that they were in fact capable of handling Vista, but then ended up in a legal battle because even within those machines, not all of them could even run the full Vista feature set. And while all this was happening, the nail in the coffin was that Apple capitalized on Vista's flailing reputation with the famous I'm a Mac adverts. They took all the major and even the minor problems in Windows at the time and turned Microsoft into a joke. Ensuing a full two years of persistent pummeling to an already dying piece of software. Microsoft probably did break a few windows after this one. Seven out of 10. All right. Okay. Nintendo, for the most part, really is a visionary company. Time and time again, they've proved that they understand the essence of what makes a game fun. Like some of my fondest childhood memories are literally sitting in a playground with my school friends connecting our Game Boys via a cable so we could play multiplayer Mario Kart. But in 1995, Nintendo made the biggest misstep of their entire history. They saw the growing interest in gaming, obviously, but also virtual reality, and decided it was time to fuse worlds. Enter the Virtual Boy. Can you imagine the level of hype after how successful the original Game Boy was? Except the end product they came out with wasn't actually virtual reality it was just stereoscopic 3d pretty similar to just sticking on one of those red and blue glasses in the cinema the only colors it could display were red and black and the worst part to avoid potential lawsuits from people wearing this on their face and bumping into things the headset had to be attached to this stand and the way to use it was you had to kind of sit down next to it on a table and lean your neck into it it's not entirely surprising then that as well as the console's premise its success was also virtual You thought the Wii U sold badly at 13 million units. This thing sold just 770,000. There's an actual port here to be able to connect two virtual boys together for multiplayer, but this thing flopped so quickly that the connector to go in that port didn't even have time to come out. Did you know that Alphabet, the company behind Google, tried to get affordable internet access to every single person on earth, especially those with the worst network infrastructure and little access to traditional cell towers using high altitude balloons sent to the stratosphere? It was appropriately called Project Loon. And there was so much merit here, because these balloons could get much higher than traditional cell towers. Each one was capable of providing a 25 mile radius of people on the ground with 3G speeds. And because they were above the clouds, they could be powered entirely by solar energy. But sadly, just this year, Alphabet announced that having burnt through a billion dollars, Loon had popped mostly for regulatory reasons some countries had no problem at all allowing all these internet balloons in their airspace but other countries told them to go do one and so this hurt the efficiency of the project it meant that instead of having a whole interconnected web of balloons everywhere that could all communicate and send signals between them to wherever needed we'd end up having one separated cluster of balloons over here one of them over here one of them over here and at that point you might as well just manually build the infrastructure so i'm giving this one a 7 out of 10 fail inflated because of A, how much money was lost, but also B, how much Alphabet and Google were talking up this project. All right. Number three is quite possibly the largest social media blunder to date. So, what happened was, back in 2014, hundreds of thousands of Americans were served up a quiz. It asked them questions about their behavior and psychology, as well as that of their friends, and it made people log into their Facebook accounts to submit that quiz. What these people didn't realize, though, is that by doing so, they were basically allowing someone to combine that behavioral data from their quiz, with their personal info from their Facebook page, including their photos, into a complete psychometric profile of themselves. And, every other person connected to them. Through a few hundred thousand people taking this quiz, a personality profile could be built for every single living American. But what made it so much worse was that this data was then given to a data mining firm called Cambridge Analytica, who were at the time working on Donald Trump's campaign for president. They used this extra info about people to target tailored political advertising to them. Things like what kind of messaging they would respond to, and how many times they'd need to see that messaging so that they would end up voting the way that Cambridge Analytica wanted them to. This was horrific news for Facebook, because even though they weren't the ones doing the bad thing, it was their platform that let it happen. It was their responsibility to make sure that user data was protected. They didn't do that. And as a consequence, were slapped with one of the biggest fines in history for misconduct at $5 billion. Oh yeah, and a worldwide trending campaign to delete Facebook. You know what they say? All press is good press. Unless you're Facebook. Eight out of 10 fail. All right, number two revolves around a guy called Billy McFarland who, through a semi-successful startup company, managed to network with some pretty powerful people. And one day him and a few of those people had an idea. To create a music festival, two weeks of just pure luxury on a private island with endless gourmet food, luxury villas, white beaches, and a guest list full of celebrities. They paid hundreds of influencers to talk up this so-called Fire Festival, including people like Kendall Jenner and Bella Hadid, and it wasn't long before the entire thing sold out. Oh, do you want to know how much the tickets were, by the way? up to $250,000 per person. Yep, that much. It's the kind of money that most normal people can't even think about. But to be fair, this opportunity to share a private island with the most famous people on the planet, that's not normally something that money can even buy. So to the people who had the money, it's worth it. But what had happened here was that all the promises were made and tickets sold before Billy and team had actually thought about costs. And when they did that, they realized that they didn't have enough. Because yes, while the top-end tickets were extortionate, in trying to get the numbers up, they sold the majority of them at closer to $1,000. So they couldn't build people luxury villas, people arrived on the island only to realize that they had a tent. There was no food, people were literally starving, and so the staff decided to distract them from this fact by shoving bottles of tequila down their throats. But that is literally a recipe for casualties. Every single one of the major music appearances they told people would be there were complete no-shows, and some of the ones on the list hadn't even confirmed in the first place. This private island was actually the empty space behind a bunch of hotels on a public island, and they didn't tell people whose tent was whose. So people arrived expecting luxury, but actually ended up having a free-for-all and needing to steal mattresses to make sure that they had a place to sleep. This was a war zone. Plus on top of all of that, people were instructed to put all of their money onto this fire bracelet because it was gonna be a cashless festival. Except when people arrived, they realized that because the festival was off, there was no one on the island who was willing to take payments from it. And there was no way to get the money off. By every metric, this was a horrific experience for people. But Justice was served with a $100 million class action lawsuit against Billy. And then another lawsuit. And then seven more lawsuits. Then he was charged for fraud. And given six years in prison. Eight out of ten. Now, just before fail number one, do remember that this is only one of like seven different tech fails videos. So if your favorite fail isn't in this one, it might well be on those ones and I'll leave them linked from here. So number one is the UK's response to COVID. I'm being deadly serious. So the government had this idea that national lockdowns are terrible for the economy. True. So what we're gonna do is develop a test and trace app that can enforce individual lockdowns, that can keep track of exactly who has COVID and therefore who needs to isolate because they've been in contact with those people. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. How much are you gonna spend on that? 22 billion pounds. Excuse me? T- to give you some perspective, 22 billion pounds is enough money to buy not one, but two PlayStation 5s for every single house in the country. It could provide 1.1 million jobs, or according to the crisis charity, is twice as much money needed to end homelessness. But do you wonder know what the funny part is? They decided partway through development that 22 billion wasn't enough. And so they've already burnt through 37. And their app has not done its one and only job to prevent another national lockdown. We've already had two more since it started. It's a completely broken system. The goal was to log when someone was identified to have COVID and then using a smartphone notification instantly alert that person and everyone around them to stay in their homes. But at best, this app is only reaching about 50% of the contacts of the person who has COVID. So half of them are being told to isolate, and half of these people are almost being reassured that actually they are in fact fine, when they're not. Not only that, but the process is so drawn out that it's on average taking a week after someone becomes infectious for their app to tell them that they should be isolating, which is far too late because at that point, they could well have infected tens more people and they could well have been infectious for so long that they're not infectious anymore. But it's that point at which they're being told to stay at home. But on top of all of that, the data being fed to the app, the backbone of this operation is Microsoft Excel and not the new one, Excel 1997. A lot of data from tests is being stored using this program, but because it has a limit of 65,000 rows, we've actually had a point where new people were getting tested and were getting results, but the system couldn't record them because they'd reached maximum cell capacity. So basically, we thought cases were looking like this, when they should have actually been looking like this. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not an easy system to create, but that doesn't change the fact that what we did end up getting was not just immeasurably wasteful, but also genuinely gave people a false sense of security that has been shown to be more damaging. Nine out of 10 fail. The only way it could have possibly been worse is maybe if someone was deliberately doing it. I know it might look like it, but I genuinely think this is just immeasurably poor planning on a scale never before seen. Bit like my videos. (laughs) If you enjoyed this, then I'm gonna leave a ton of tech fail videos linked from this one. Do check them out, they'll be all around here. My name is Aaron, this is Mr. Who's the Boss.